1: so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? Sold! Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We choose to go to the moon in this
0: decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they
1: are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem.
0: Welcome back to Space Junk 2020. I'm delighted to be back podcasting after a slightly longer than anticipated hiatus over the summer blame a combination of bushfires, admin, and illness. But here we are, and today's episode is an absolute cracker. My first interlocutor for the decade is Dr. Mariba Jar, an Associate Professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of Aerospace Engineering and Engineering Mechanics. Mariba is the Director for Computational Astronautical Sciences and Technologies, a group within the Odin Institute for Computational Engineering and Sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. He is also the lead for the Space Security and Safety Program at the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law. Mariba came to UT Austin by way of the Air Force Research Laboratory and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory prior to that, where he was a spacecraft navigator on a handful of Mars missions. Mariba is a fellow of multiple organizations. TED, American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, American Astronautical Society, International Association for the Advancement of Space Safety, Royal Astronomical Society, and the Air Force Research Laboratory. He has served on the US delegation to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, is an elected academician of the International Academy of Astronautics, and has testified to Congress on his work as related to space situational awareness and space traffic management. He's an associate editor at the Elsevier Advances in Space Research Journal, and serves on multiple committees, IAA Space Debris, AIAA Astrodynamics, IAF Astrodynamics, and IAF Space Security. While in the US last year for the International Astronautical Congress, Mariba and I got talking at a dodgy bar in DC. Some drinks later, we decided to get together over Skype and record this episode. We chat about tackling fear in the face of adversity, traditional ecological knowledge, and what it all has to do with space sustainability. I hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed recording it. We jump straight in after I asked Mariba to describe how he came to work in the space sector.
2: I would say that the, the the earliest thing to really talk about is the fact that once I finished high school in Venezuela I enlisted in the US Air Force as a security policeman and it was my job to provide security to uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles in Montana so so nuclear missiles in Montana and interestingly enough you know Montana is is a very uh, has very big skies I mean that that they call Montana big sky country and and that that is well deserved And so, uh, you know, when I used to work on night shifts, I would uh, look up at the skies and I would see dots of light moving. uh, And it occurred to me that these things were not shooting stars, they weren't airplanes. And I'm like, you know, what is this stuff? And it turns out that they were, you know, artificial satellites, you know, human made objects in space. And I think that really really solidified in my mind. I was like, wow, like, I can't believe that I can see, I can see satellites. That was like, so cool. And I think that's really what sparked an initial interest for me, but I just never thought that somebody like me would be doing the work, uh, you know, that I'm doing. And when I got out of the military, I started studying aerospace engineering, but uh, I was already an older student and uh, it was just very difficult. It was just very difficult, uh, the math and all these things. And um, I didn't. I just didn't think that space would be my thing. And it was through Embry-Riddle that I met this one professor, uh, Ron Madler, who he had worked in space debris. And I, I actually thought that was like one of the most unappealing things you could ever do is work on space junk. I'm like, all right, so out of everything you'd work on in space, space garbage. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and so, so I just, what I decided instead is I really wanted to focus on understanding, you know, orbits and and orbital motion, you know, astrodynamics, uh, which is the science that studies motion of objects in space. So I wanted to do that, but my dream job was to work uh, one day for NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, flying stuff to Mars, and um, and so I was able to, to finish up my bachelor's degree, and I got accepted into graduate school under George Bourne, late George Bourne, at the University of Colorado, also in aerospace engineering. My tests, grades weren't so good. Um, my GPA uh, wasn't wasn't as high as a lot of people that get into grad school. So I was already kind of like, uh, uh, may, may, maybe with the, the help of the tides, uh, I could you know get into graduate school, but George Bourne gave me an opportunity uh, to to prove myself and 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 I'm I'm so happy that that he gave me that chance and, um, yeah I, I I studied astrodynamics at University of Colorado Boulder, and you know one thing led to the next sort of thing and I got an offer to work at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab and uh, specifically on Mars missions so exactly what I had kind of dreamt of doing, and it was a ex- yeah exciting times working on different rovers and and orbiter missions and that sort of thing, but um, Eventually, eventually, uh, you know years later, we 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 went on a conference uh, professional conference that happened to be in Maui, and my family fell in love with the island. and they said, "Thou shalt find a job here on Maui." And uh, I knew that my days were numbered at JPL more so than I thought. And I actually found a a, a position working uh, as a contractor for the Air Force Research Laboratory on Maui. And that's when I started tracking things orbiting the earth. So move away from Mars, now look at things orbiting the earth. And that's really when I started working this idea of space traffic and space situational awareness. So that was around uh, 2006.
0: Right. And then what brought you towards the space law aspect of things?
2: Yeah. So (laughs) one of the things within the Air Force Research Laboratory, um, I became very aware of Uh, the U.S.'s participation in the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, uh, UN COPOS, that meets in Vienna. And uh, I was very fortunate to be brought on by the U.S. delegation as a technical expert uh, to participate in some of these meetings. And then I started really getting some insight into the policy and the law uh, aspects of space and how these kind of play with 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 uh, you know interact with the technical aspects. And so I realized that you know if we want to really solve this space traffic space sustainability problem, uh, the, the the law and the policy and the scientific uh, need to coexist and it needs to be a transdisciplinary type of activity
0: go back a little bit you mentioned that you thought that someone like you wouldn't fit in to the world of you know aerospace or space law or anything like that how do you see yourself and how do you see the world that you felt like you wouldn't fit into
2: yeah so you know my um, my parents uh, divorced when I was quite young my mother uh, eventually remarried this this gentleman from Venezuela so uh, at the age of six, I went to Venezuela, and I kind of grew up there. Um, for for high school, I went to a boarding school, which was a military school. Um, and I would I would I would classify myself as a blue collar uh, sort of person. Uh, um, and even though my my mother had gone to college, my stepfather had a second grade education. And um, yeah, I mean, I just. I, I didn't get into uh, these sorts of big schools that a lot of people get into. Like I said, I enlisted after high school, um, and so that definitely put me on a very kind of interesting path, uh, kind of living, living, living on two-week schedules, paycheck to paycheck sort of thing. And you know, once I got out of the military, my my jobs were quite limited. Uh, pretty much, I could work as a security guard. Uh, I could get work for that, but not anything else, and nobody would give me any opportunity, and uh, it was very frustrating for me. And look, it got to the point where, with all the the bills that I had, you know, all the debt that I had collected, uh, not getting paid a whole lot, but 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 uh, um, you know, getting a lot of debt while still in the service, it got to the point where um, I couldn't even really buy food, and so so there were there were months. There were months that I spent uh, e- eating eating from eating from dumpsters, eating from the garbage. Um, and so that was that. I mean, I definitely hit what I would call kind of rock bottom, so to speak, and how uh, to do some soul searching and find myself. And um, and yeah, uh, I, I was I was I knew about this place, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University from my time in the service. I, I'd heard about it. But I was just very, um, I didn't have mentorship. I didn't have guidance. Um, you know, in hindsight, things were easier than what I thought, but to me, it was a big mountain, you know, uh, having to apply to a university, you know, all these forms and stuff. I mean, this was, uh, these were the days before the internet. Uh, so, so, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the days before the internet and the days of, of typewriters and stuff like that, you know? And, um, it was just very, uh, you know, the snail mail. Uh, you took a, it took a long time to get replies, and uh, you had to pay for post stamps and all these things. And I just, I didn't have the resources. And I, again, I didn't have the guidance. And so I was just very afraid. I was very, very afraid of all these things, and 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 fear stopped me from doing a lot of stuff, and ignorance, uh, actually. Um, and so when I applied to Embry-Riddle as a non-traditional student, I got in, Look, I mean, I amassed all sorts of student loan debt that I'm still paying to this day because I just, again, I didn't have guidance in the mentorship, right? And so, um, it's almost like what I'm doing isn't isn't meant for people like me. It's meant for 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 other folks that that uh, uh, kind of have have a, a, let's let's call it um, lives that where where more options are are kind of the norm. And um, and I just kind of discovered things through through trial uh, you know, uh, trial and tribulation, I bumped into to things. And I was just hungry. I was hungry for opportunity. Uh, I worked, I did a lot of stuff for free, a lot of stuff for free. I'd volunteer for lots of stuff, you know? I'll, I'll work the night shift, I'll do this, I'll just give me the book and I'll, you know? And that was who I was. I never said no to opportunities, I was just hungry. And that is what made the difference uh, for me to the point where when I got the job at JPL, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, how is it possible that 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 somebody like me is working at this place and and, and working alongside the people whose whose papers I read as a student and 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 all that. And um, it's still, to some extent, it's still a very surreal uh, kind of thing for me.
0: Let's talk a bit about fear because you mentioned that you felt extremely afraid, but that you managed to push through that. Um, I think that. For me, fear is something that I have to practice pushing through. I mean, I do. um, Later, after I finish this interview, I'm going to spend an hour sparring with someone because I decided that I didn't want to be afraid anymore. So I practice getting in the ring and having someone, uh, don't listen, mum, aim punches at me and just sort of uh, pushing through that and accepting it and then deciding what to do next. And for me, that's been a really... Um, sort of transformative thing in my life but how about for you how did you come to recognize the fear and then tackle it
2: yeah so you know one of the interesting things uh that 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 i've come to embrace and i've said to people is you know courage courage is uh the absence of paralysis in the presence of fear And so, and and so that is, that is, that is one of my mantras. And um, as you, as you can attest to fear kind of wears you out, fear wears you out and you find yourself kind of cornered, find yourself limited. And uh, for some people, you get to the point where you just get tired of it. And for me, there was a lot of asking questions like, what if, what if, what if? And the what if kind of feeds into the fear and all that. And I got to the point where I could say, so what? So what? And once I could say, so what more frequently, that's when I could start moving through the fear and being courageous, uh, you know, based on my definition. And so, um, yeah, that's that's how I kind of started moving through stuff. But I, I, I mean, I have to say that... Uh, you know, I still have to go out and, and and go for runs very frequently and these sorts of things, just to manage my own anxiety and that sort of stuff. So I, I'm not, I haven't escaped it. I haven't transcended it. Uh, I've just found healthier ways to manage it. Because when I was younger, I I found very unhealthy ways to deal with it, and I and I think now I, I've uh, you know not, now that I'm uh, about you know almost you know 50 years old is on my doorstep kind of thing. Um, I am, I am, yeah, yeah, yeah. I. Uh,
0: Sorry, I just made a face.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I'm finally I'm finally getting to a point where I can, uh, I think, you know, channel that in, in more healthy ways for sure.
0: Right, tell me about this experience in Alaska. When we met um, a couple of weeks ago in DC, we were drinking in a bar around this really dodgy alleyway in DC with a bunch of very interesting space folk and Maripa told me about an experience he had. Um, So I'd really like to share that
2: with everyone. Yeah. So uh, basically, there was a a good friend of mine who was retiring from the military, and he invited me to be at his retirement ceremony in Anchorage because uh, uh, when he first enlisted, uh, I was one of his first kind of uh, kind of teammates and whatnot, uh, stationed in in Montana guarding nuclear missiles, and he made it a career. And so uh, basically. I took my son Denali uh, to to Anchorage so that I could take him so he could meet uh, meet the region where his name originated from the the, the Native Alaskans and and so uh, interestingly you know there are these uh, Native Alaskans the the Dena um, uh, and Denali means great one uh, loosely translated and um, and that's that that was the name that we gave to our son and I wanted him to meet meet that region and get. Uh, uh, familiar with that. And so one morning, you know, I woke up and there was just, I saw a very huge disparity between Native Alaskans and and, and the rest of us kind of Americans and stuff. Uh, very huge disparities between them and, and, and us and an environment, an environment that's just kind of uh, deteriorating, just very sad uh, to see the impact of of, of non-sustainable behavior uh, on the environment. and I woke up and I felt and you know enveloped by by what why, what I'm gonna call is is a presence. I felt a presence around me that felt very old, uh, very sad. I, I got overcome by by deep, deep sadness. Um, and in my mind's eye sort of thing, it's like I saw flashes of of how there have been people. Indigenous people around the globe that have understood what being in balance with the environment means and how to strike that balance and, and live in, in ways that are sustainable, not overfishing, not this, not that, uh, not taking more than you need to, and 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 uh, tenets of of respect. And uh it's 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 vanishing. And and I felt this this presence around me uh kind of ask me if. If I was willing to 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 do whatever it, I could to let people know that this knowledge is disappearing, and to remind them of this balance with with the with the environment with with life, and um, I just I it 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 I felt broken inside, and and uh, I just fell to the floor sobbing. Uh, for a very long time, and, and of course, my answer was a resounding yes, and um, this is one of the things that is the underlying impetus to the work that I do and the travels that I do is to basically try to, to, to whatever extent, uh, rescue, you know, th- this kind of so-called traditional ecological knowledge and these tenets of sustainability and use that as a basis to try to apply that to, to our work. And trying to get space to to become you know safe secure and sustainable
0: so how do we take that that ethos of sustainability and apply it to space
2: yeah so so you know interestingly one of the obvious tenets of uh tek a uh, traditional ecological knowledge is take take lots of observations and study the environment and understand your relationship to things in the environment that is like it's like so scientific. It's kind of something that we do, and we we maybe we take for granted. So, so that is a foundational piece. I feel that uh, a lot of people around the globe are feeling a bit of a panic about, you know, people launching this, that, or the other, and I believe are prematurely trying to uh, uh, establish things, put things in place without really understanding the impact of that. People are. Are behaving in a way that uh, a better way to say that is they're out, uh, out in front of the headlights. Uh, that's never a good thing to be to 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 be driving faster than your headlights allow you to make decisions, kind of thing. And so I feel that in space we're still racing, we're outpacing uh, our understanding of our effects and impacts on the environment. So T.E.K. would say slow down, share information. Uh, you know, understand all these relationships, and then you can make some informed uh, decisions. And another thing of TEK that I like quite a bit is this idea of uh, respect. Respect in the beliefs, and and especially when it's a, a shared, common environment. Different peoples may have slightly different customs, traditions, and beliefs, and these are important. Uh, and 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 how to how to achieve balance in the presence. Of, of maybe differing views and that sort of stuff. And so TEK kind of underscores how to be able to achieve uh, these things. So these are examples of, of, of things that, hey, listen, um, we can definitely apply that to space because it's definitely quite relevant.
0: I was talking yesterday with Alice Gorman, who's a space archaeologist from Australia, and we were discussing the fact that, um, so, so I said to her that one of the things that I love the most about summer is I love to go and lie under a tree, look up through the leaves of the tree to the sky, because it's one of the few things that my eyes can um, look at, that I can take in information about, that looks precisely the same as it has looked for humans for thousands of years. Everywhere else I look, it's different. There's, you know, uh, power lines and, and cars and all sorts of things going on. And especially on a clear day, somewhere where there isn't much pollution, that is quite beautiful. And I used to think that looking at the night sky was a similar experience, but of course it's not. We've got satellites, we've got space junk, we've got all sorts of things that are very different. And she then said that we need to really think about the impact of something like Starlink, for example, on the night sky that future generations will see, because it's one thing to look at the benefits that come from technology, and I don't want to be seen, seen as someone who's saying, you know, oh, let's all go back to just not having any technology. But at the same time, there is a cultural impact from changing the very map that humanity has used for so long to navigate, to understand our world, to basically do everything. Uh, And we sort of, I think, need to think more about that and then also think about who is the we that is changing this. It's a very privileged set. It's the one percent, if you like. It's this tiny portion of the world, mostly based in the U.S. and you know other kind of wealthy countries. For the vast majority of the billions of people on Earth today, they do not get a say in that. So that's something I think that we really need to think about.
2: Yeah, and I think I think what you just said is something that's quite underscored with uh, with traditional ecological knowledge, is that sort of thing. Um, and and yeah, how how you know, uh, the few making unilateral decisions for the many, uh, that that is, that is not uh, in the context of traditional ecological knowledge. Mm.
0: Although some people would say that asking people to be more careful about these things is just unrealistic, that there's no way that you can halt progress that I mean, it's a, it's a one particular view of history, which is we start from this point and we're going somewhere here and we're on a ladder up to it and you can't halt that progress. As someone who studies the history and philosophy of science, I don't really subscribe to that view at all. I think it's far more chaotic. But at the same time, um, I guess I'm not in a position of power and there are others making decisions and they do subscribe to that. And so they think, well, no, we can't halt progress for progress's sake. We just have to let it keep going. What do you think?
2: So I'm somebody who doesn't believe that every decision has to be born from consensus. I don't think we need consensus for everything, but uh, I do think that we need to socialize ideas. I think we need to uh, get feedback and input from others. And I think that the decisions need to be made, not only taking this into account, but respecting these perspectives. And being able to relate to maybe the people that 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 have some disagreements, um, you know, we we proceed and, and maybe we proceed in these ways and with you know with you along as a community. And you may not fully agree with this, uh, but here, here's some compromises. I think seeing more of that would be good versus uh, you know I I I got the green light and I can do it. And so. And, and, and it's legal for me to do, so I'm just going to do it. Like, the argument of I'm just going to do it because it's legal is, uh, is you know, I don't like that very much.
0: Right. Well, this is where we come to the, the whole system of international law. And I think that um, when you're looking at international law, you can't look at it like tax legislation. You can't look at the edges of the words and the interpretations and say, well, anything that isn't expressly prohibited, I'm just fine to do because there are ethical considerations and also international law is especially space law it's not complete and sometimes that's on purpose but it's designed to be a set of principles that you then use to inform common sense about the acts that you might take Um, and so it it does really concern me when people start to apply a very traditional legal lens to international law because I think and not just because I like to do sociology of science, but I do think that you need to think of it as more of a socially constructed thing um, rather than being sort of a magical set of words imbued with a certain sense. At the end of the day, these are some ideas that a group of people agreed to a long time ago, but very, you know, very smart people, I think very forward thinking um, that they agreed to because they thought it was a decent idea and they sort of thought, Oh, that sounds just about right. And there's power in that.
2: I agree. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What about, um, the sort of colonial narrative around Mars? What do you think about that?
2: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I can tell you that, uh, this idea of, of, you know, colonization and, and that sort of thing for, for probably good reasons. Uh, I don't like so much. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm definitely a, I would say a product of colonization. Uh, it's not been a very positive experience uh, for me. Uh, my mother being from Haiti, um, you know, Fr- French colony for sure. And in other places um, when I tra- when I go around and travel around the globe, you know, I speak a bit of French and a bit of Haitian, and 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 I speak some Spanish. I mean, growing up in Venezuela, and um, it's it's very interesting to go to to the original country and kind of be viewed a little bit, uh, you know, not 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 embraced and be be seen as, uh, you know, from kind of from the colonies and that sort of stuff. And even even the mentality with which uh, sometimes I view problems and stuff, I, I realize. Um, you know, let's put it this way. When, you know, when I go to grocery stores and that sort of stuff, I try to make myself small. I try to make myself, uh, somebody who doesn't look threatening. I try to look, so there's all these kind of things, these behaviors that I take on myself more than, more than, you know, whatever normal is. Uh, and, and, and I have, to have to do these things. I think, you know, as a result of, uh, Kind of the long term, the long term products of colonization, and so when I hear language about colonizing Mars, I'm like, wow, didn't we do enough of that? Uh, somewhere, and, and do we need more of that? And so, I think, I think, being able to you know, uh, cohabitate a place and that sort of stuff, I think, even the language that we use just needs to be changed because we need to have some fresh perspectives about uh, perhaps one day becoming a species that that lives on a place beyond Earth.
0: What is it in the language that you think is powerful? Because I've had conversations with people where they say, ah, but I'm a pragmatist and, you know, we're talking about the same thing. But you say that you think if the language changes, then that has some impact.
2: Yeah, I think, I think words, I think words have meaning. Uh, I try when I speak, I try to choose my words carefully. I'm, I'm not uh, always uh, clearly successful with that. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when you talk to, let me put it this way, right? It's like if you went and you talked to the Hawaiians about sending people to Mars and you say, oh yeah, we're going to colonize Mars, that's a big irritant. Uh, because, you know, in their minds, very near history, they they consider themselves uh, you know, illegally taken over, and all these other things, and and have suffered uh, greatly due to colonization. And so, uh, you know, that already means that these people aren't going to participate. They're not going to be. They're not even going to be uh, attempting to try to be a part of what, of what this other group of people trying to send people to to Mars are, are trying to do. Just just from the wording that that's used. And so, I think, I think people need to think. You know, take into account. You know these different uh, uh, terms, that, rightly so, uh, can be offensive and can bring up negative, uh, you know, memories of, of very real experiences. Uh, when we when we talk about exploring uh, and, and and trying to and trying to extend the body of knowledge of humanity and these sorts of things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Where do you see the future of space? Are you pessimistic, or do you have hope that humanity will do better?
2: I'm going to say that I'm going to have hope that humanity can do better, Um, because I have to. And um, I also say that if our species is to really survive long term, we have no choice but to figure out how to reside in other places, because uh, you know the population uh, is not overall is not decreasing, and uh, Earth only has finite you know land mass. So that says absolutely uh, we're gonna we're 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 going to even if we try to practice sustainable things, at some point it's the tragedy of the commons. A uh, 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 sort of experience, and so we need to find a way to be sustainable uh, and to be able to live uh, on other, you know, orbital spheres, as it were. And so we need to we need to actually try to do that sooner rather than later. Um, so yeah.
0: And Marie, but do you have any advice for people who might be listening to this and maybe they don't see themselves represented in the space community, but they have an interest in it? Any advice to them about how to, um, I guess, find that courage and how to go about becoming
1: involved?
2: Yeah, so so I'm going to say this, right? Um, we don't currently, we don't idolize people that get on a train and go from one part of the US to another. We don't idolize uh, folks that get on a plane and travel or on a boat but we still kind of idolize this whole space thing. There's a lot of space groupies and kind of this elitism and uh, space is only for the select few. And I just think that that's like uh, utter ridiculousness. And so the challenge that I'm gonna put to people out there is if in any way, shape or form, if you have a love and an interest in space, but feel that it's not for you, that is not a perspective that is natural. It is. It is a perspective that is learned, and it is a perspective that has been passed to you, uh, you know, through 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 inequity. Inequity is what has passed that perspective to you. And so, my challenge to you then is to force yourself to recognize that space is just another domain of human activity. It's an extension of the human experience, and it's rightfully uh, there for you to to be a participant, and regardless of what anybody says, um, and, and, you know, yes, to be a participant in it, it might mean that you have to overcome many, many more obstacles than other people do, but don't let that be the thing that prevents you from being able to be part of the fabric of that community. And the more successful uh, you know, those folks are, it makes it easier for the people after them and so on and so forth. So I think eventually eventually the folks that want to be exclusionists and isolationists and, and, isolationist and th- that sort of stuff, uh, that, that genetic pool will find itself going the way of the dodo uh, and, and we just need to promote uh, normalcy uh, of, of outer space activities.
0: Reba, it's been an absolute pleasure. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover that we haven't talked about?
2: I think, look, I think this is good. I think it's been a candid conversation. And and so I'm very thankful uh, that you gave me this opportunity and, and looking forward to seeing you again.
0: You too. Thank you so much.
2: All right, cheers.
0: Before you switch off the pod, I want to let you know about an event I'll be moderating down in Melbourne later this month. On Wednesday, the 26th of February at 6.15pm, the Moon Village Association and the Office of Other Spaces will be putting on a public forum on the Moon to be held at the M Pavilion. I'll be joined by the fabulous Donna Lawler, the wonderful Alice Gorman, the talented Keridwan Dovey and the brilliant Gabrielle Harris for an all-female panel, followed by an open discussion with all participants. If you're interested, you can find a link to get tickets on my Twitter, which is at, at Annie Hanmer, or you can Google Moon Village Association Forum Melbourne, and it should turn up. Thank you for listening to Space Junk. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, or send an email to the thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. Happy 2020.